Hi, everybody. Welcome to the LSC. I am Grace Lorden, an Associate Professor in Behavioural Science. I am the Director of the Inclusion Initiative at the LSC, and I'm also the author of Think Big, Take Small Steps and Build the Future You Want. My Twitter for tonight, if you want a message, is at Grace Lorden underscore. Um, I'm here with Professor Paul Dolan, and we are going to be talking tonight about a decade in behavioural science. Paul is the person who came to LSE, conceived the idea of bringing behavioural science to the LSE and has advanced it in the last decade through bringing our colleagues on board. He is a chair in behavioural science. Um, he set up the executive MSc in behavioural science and also more recently the MSc in behavioural science. He is the author of Happiness by Design and Happy Ever After. And he's written um, hundreds of behavioural science papers that are published in top international journals and the broader social sciences. And I actually think, Paul, you're pretty nice to boot which doesn't often go hand in hand with being so successful. So congratulations and welcome. Well, thank you very much, Grace. I don't know what to say to that, Well, thank you. Um... So I'm really excited about tonight, slightly nervous. I met with Paul um, earlier this morning and he said he didn't want to prep any of the questions. So this is entirely fly by night, which means the people who are listening today from around the world play a very, very important role. Please do ask questions in the chat bar <clears throat> of both the ones that you want. And we will be getting to those uh, pretty quickly, actually. But I'm going to start just to set the scene by asking Paul to look backwards over the last 10 years and highlight some big moments and then look forward and tell us what his expectations are for the next decade. Paul, over to you. Yeah, thank you very much, Grace. Yeah, no, it's nice. I want to try, we try and keep this as an informal conversation as we can, I think. It's why it's nice not to have prepared anything. Um, <clears throat> and uh, yeah, so I guess, I mean, the last decade, yeah, I came, I came to the LSE in two, 2010. And I guess around that time was, I think it's probably around that time that Nudge was published, I think. Um, and it was the time that we sort of started scoping out the behavioral insights team um, in the cabinet office in number 10. And there was a real appetite for behavioral science, I think, in public policy. Um, and the whole kind of nudge agenda was quite attractive, I think, to both left and right, because it had the libertarian paternalism elements to it. So it was kind of preserving freedoms at the same time as kind of nudging people in ways that policymakers thought they they ought to be nudged and maybe we'll pick up on some of those issues I think in due course but so it was a coalescence of I think a political interest uh, public policy making Gus O'Donnell was cabinet secretary in the UK at that time he he's always shown a very keen appetite in behavioral science and how it can be applied to policy making so it's a kind of sweet spot I think for getting behavioral science applied into policy we um, wrote the Mindspace report that then um, you know has been kind of used quite widely in policy making and, and increasingly in the corporate sector, I suppose. So the last decade, at sort of, at, least at, at least at the LSE, has been a capacity building um, agenda, I think, to get more people interested and more people trained in it. Um, you mentioned the e EMSC, that was an opportunity to develop capacity in behavioural science quickly by training sort of middle and senior executives to apply those insights more rigorously in their organizations and institutions and we've seen uh, i think an increase in the use of behavioral insights behavioral science in the private sector in the public sector across ngos so it's kind of sort of galvanized interest in how you can understand and change people's behavior in a more rigorous and scientific way um so i guess that's been that's been a reflection on on the last decade it's just been kind of more of it i suppose we're kind of get maybe into some of the the more scientific and research-based questions in due course, I would imagine. But that's certainly been been what's happened over the last the last ten years. And I, 
and, and, and really that from a disciplinary perspective has been mostly, although not exclusively, um, sort of interface of economics and psychology, I suppose. It's been a, a sort of coming together of those disciplines. Um, you know, Kahneman's Nobel Prize is, an, is, is a sort of example of applying, you know, psychological insights to economic decisions. Um, <clears throat> Thaler obviously won, won the Nobel Prize a couple of years ago as well. Um, so I guess that's been, and it's been a lot about in that decade and certainly a bit before, has been around biases, heuristics, um, you know, the kind of ways in which people's decisions might not always, or in fact, rarely be consistent with what economic theory would suggest and understanding some of the reasons for that and some of the ways in which we might um, take advantage of, of those biases in ways that would enable people to, to be happier or to be healthier or to do the things that they might ideally wish that they would otherwise do. I think the next decade um, is probably going to be more about this, I guess, the involvement of other disciplines in behavioural science. I mean, LSE is, 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 is obviously a good place for social science, and we're starting to see some of that come through with collaborations and interest across disciplines that, that are all really about understanding and changing behaviour, but might not badge themselves as such. So uh, in anthropology and sociology um, um, and, and in understanding um, I guess cultures as well as context, right? So, so I think that's that's really important. Placing human behaviour in its in its you know proper cultural space and place, um, as well as the context within which which it's located. So, um, social psych, social psych obviously has a has a significant contribution to make there. Uh, but but then also I think maybe um, collaborations and research programs and policy impact with natural sciences and basic sciences. So I'm thinking of um, biology, physiological associations with psychological behavioral uh, insights. I'm thinking of maybe also data science as well, which is a kind of big, a big part of what, of, of what the next decade looks like. So, so I think, I think that's, I think we're going to see, we're going to see a coming together of different disciplines to address behavioral problems that apply to decision making at very local contextual levels through to systemic institutional and cultural uh, levels i think that's that would be what i would imagine is going to happen in the next decade if we think about kind of for um some of the things that you just said so if we focus um on adaptation for a second and kind of moving forward into the next 10 years i think if we look at the literature that's at the intersection of psychology and economics it often seems that behavioral scientists are quantifying interventions early, but not necessarily in the medium and the long run. And when you were talking about data scientists, is that what you have in mind, that we're going to be able to move to models where we're looking at interventions and tracking their success, not just in the moment or one week or one month later, actually going much longer into the future? Yeah, I think so. There is a temporal, there, 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 there will be a temporal dimension to that as we broaden out not just our understanding within a moment but but into the longer term i mean one of my own uh, with other colleagues um, at the at the lsc one of my own my, my, my own main research interests over this last decade has been looking at spillover effects of how one behavior you know leads to consequent changes in in um, other behaviors sometimes in the same domain often across different different areas and you know no no single behavior sits in a vacuum um so that that is certainly uh, an area that will be advanced. I think one of the reasons, I mean, it, it's not it's, it's not surprising that behavioural science would have started, or at least a lot of the interventions would have started with 
with easily quantifiable, quite temporally located behaviors, right? Where you could, where you could see and observe the change quite quickly. And that would then sort of, you know, kind of galvanize interest in why people would, would be interested in your, in your evidence and in your interventions. Um, I think it has potentially led us to, to not focus on some of the, the bigger uh, issues and the bigger behavior change. So, you know, you think about behaviors in relation to obesity, for example, which is a series, you know, which is, which is lots of behaviors um, over a long time. Um, is that I think that's where I think that's where I'm, I think that the the understanding of the other disciplines that would be brought to economic and psychological decisions or the interface of biases and heuristics will enable us to be able to paint a more complete picture of of how an individual's behaviour and how institutional behaviours and how societal behaviours are located uh, in a temporal space. So accounting for those longer term spillover effects, because one one of the things we do, one of the things we have found. Matteo Galizzi and I, when we first started looking at spillovers, was, you know, where, wherever you look for them, you found them. That the, that whenever anybody did one thing, they were it made them much more or less likely to do something else to follow. So, you know, we 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 see it in you know diet and eating behaviours. People will often, um, you know, exercise a tiny bit so they can eat quite a lot more later. Um, and actually, some of our work that's that's um, exactly what we found. So, so accounting for the full richness of an indiv- of, of an individual's behavior over the entire lifetime ideally is is sort of where we're going and maybe some of the data science methods and techniques can enable us to do that more uh, cheaply at least can i get your reaction so kind of when i look at the behavioral science literature one thing that stands out to me is that when we repeat things in the lab very often yeah. effects are diminished or indeed if we do them with populations that get to learn by doing very often effects are diminished and where they still stand strong is when we're making these kind of one shot decisions, you know, like choosing a mortgage or doing something that's really, really complicated. And if you were to take the economist view of it, because economists have written about choice under uncertainty a lot. Wow. If you take the economist view, a lot of this are information problems. So can some of what we're seeing with biases, I guess what I'm asking is, can that be worn away by learning by doing? And for the second group of things, can we get a lot of leverage out of the messenger effect, which you wrote about in Mindspace, uh, about how we actually convey information and who conveys information in order to make those choices that we have to do infrequently much easier for us? I wish we'd had a chance to speak about some of these questions before. Uh, (laughs) So I think so. I'm always going to whenever I get a tough question, I always revert back to my context matters line that all my students know that I say a lot, which is context context matters that the that the environment within which a decision is made is going to be critical to our understanding of that decision and 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 since context matters so much you take take an individual or an action out of the context move it somewhere else you get a very different effect and so part of the replication crisis might actually just be a manifestation of that to some degree is, is that you're you're seemingly on the face of it replicating an, an environment but there's something about that context that changes that makes it different and so you get different set of results across contexts. Um, to speak to the econ- economists' challenge, I think to some degree, I think like everything, it's kind of um, half, half right, half wrong. I think in in one sense, if you make if if you provide people with sufficient incentives and there's sufficient opportunities to learn, then behaviour will change 
in line with the direction of the incentives, but not all, but not always and everywhere. And so, you know, a really nice example that everyone will be familiar with is the number of times that they bought more food for the next week when they're hungry. Now, you can, there are interventions that you can engage in that would make that less likely. You take a shopping shopping list with you and it makes you stick more likely to, you know, to, to, to what you intend to buy. But we've all been hungry many times. We've all shopped many times. Yeah. And yet we will all, we're, we'll all still succumb to the bias of buying more food for next week when we're feeling hungry. So there is a sense in which we, we do learn and update, but, but not always and everywhere. And, and I think it speaks, you know, I'm kind of, we've been talking for, it feels like a while now, hopefully it doesn't feel like that long for everyone listening, but um, that we would have to have a conversation about the well-being consequences, the well-being feedback in particular that people get from their, from their, from their actions. Because, you know, a lot of, nothing that we do, nothing that we do, well, I'm going to make this claim publicly, nothing that we do that we stick with for any period of time is um, unambiguously bad for us. There must be something in it that makes us feel good. The learning, there might be not learning in the way that we might look at that behavior from the outside. There might not be learning in the way that we think we're giving people more and better information and education about um, the craziness of their actions. But there is always feedback that makes something feel good. I mean, we might be, we might be crazy, but we're not that crazy. We never, we would never continue to pursue something that has no benefit in it whatsoever. So even addictive behaviors that on the face of it, or even when we might reflect on them afterwards, we wish we hadn't done them. There's still benefit that comes in the moment, you know, the, the hit that we get. So, so I think there is, I think that's why it's been important to me for a long time and, and will always be that we understand the well-being causes and consequences of people's behavior, because only then will we be able to really say something substantive about whether people are learning, whether the information is, you know, being encoded properly in a way that we, we think it ought to be, because we really do need to understand how, how what we do affects how we feel and how we feel affects what we do. And I don't think, I think my reflections from my own research interest on the last decade and moving into the next decade is that we haven't done that anywhere near as much as we should and we probably won't do it as much as we ought to in the next decade is that we'll often be making assumptions whatever our disciplinary perspective about what's good for people and how people ought to be behaving in particular ways subject to the the ways that we're incentivizing them or giving them more information using the right messengers and all these things if only people were to listen to us properly then they would change their behavior well you know, we, we need proper inquiry into whether that's actually substantively good for them. Isn't it interesting? And I, I think, Paul, this this links um, a lot to your second book, Happy Ever After, actually, when, when you talk about narratives. I think, isn't it interesting that a lot of what people think is good for us um, seeps into the stories that we tell ourselves about what's good for us? Um, and we tell ourselves that that's who we want to be in the future. But I think what you're talking about is the tug for some of these behaviours like obesity and drug taking where the present person really just wants the instant shot of utility. But those stories that society has given us really sit in the vision of the future selves that we have for ourselves. Yeah, again, it's, a, it's you know, that's not a straightforward. That, again, none, none of these questions are straightforwardly answered, are, are they? I mean, narratives, you know, na stories and narratives provide order and structure to chaos and to complexity, and, and they're very attractive and appealing. Um, and, you know, much of the time, much of the time they're going to be good for us either individually or societally the social narratives that can you know make make most of us better off most of the time but not 
but not all of us all of the time. And and I think it's that sort of separation of the of the wheat from the chaff individually and collectively that that is the that is the big um, challenge. But you're certainly right, Mike. You're certainly right that most of what we you know, when we when we engage in these interventions to change behaviours, we do we do we do have and we do make an assumption about what would ultimately be in that person's best interest, and and we do judge, we do tend to judge that be ourselves or others, and we judge ourselves and other people very harshly when we're not cohering with a set of narratives. Um, and so I think understanding understanding the the social structure and the narratives within which those behaviours sit will give us good insight into some of the reasons why people are either changing their behavior or more interestingly, perhaps not. Um, but it still requires um, that substantive inquiry into whether any of these nudges or shoves are showing up in people feeling better in however way we might describe and measure that. One of the things that really struck me about happy ever after, which I hadn't actually thought about before you wrote about it is how, other people's circumstances enter into sometimes quite people who are quite far removed, like colleagues and friends who don't see a lot about into their utility function. So I think, you know, you talk about that we should be getting married. So if I am the single person who doesn't happen to be married, that there are people, there are colleagues, there are friends who that really enters into their utility function. And there seems to be something in human behavior about wanting to insert yourself into the story even if you don't belong in that person's narrative, that that actually can be quite negative for the person who isn't describing to society's norms. Yeah, I've always been, it's been a long-standing interest of mine. It was just kind of related to what you, what you were saying is, is just why uh, people care so much about how other people behave and live. It's really like disproportionately to the impact that it's having on them or at least on the face of it, that it ought to be having on them in some normative sense. I mean, and, and, you, and, you, and you're right. I mean, people care, you know, people care so much about whether other people, I mean, never, never mind themselves. I mean, leave, leave themselves to one side. They care about whether they get married and they have children and they live according to these stories and they get rich and successful and famous and all these things. But they, but they really care about whether other people are aspiring to those things, not even actually achieving them, right? So this is what's really important, I think, in relation to marriage, for example, is that we don't, I don't mind I don't mind you being someone who's looking to get married but it may be even if you aren't but I really don't like it if you're not even trying <laughs> right so you're not, you're, not you? <laughs> you're not playing you're not playing by the rules yeah um, it's much better that you play by the rules and don't succeed than it is that you don't play by the rules um, and and that is that is interesting and there are, there are there are good reasons you know there are good reasons why why we might have some of these uh stories and of course you know it, it as i say it does provide structure and order but it also provides societal order and structure and so it gives us something to cling to particularly at times of crisis right so you know when everything else is going you know to hell hell in a handcart at least we've got marriage right so it's kind of it sort of you know gives you some ballast to to a ship that might be falling around or sinking or something um but i do it, it does and this plays into the behavioral science interventions i'll come back to to thinking about interventions because there is a degree to which we are paternalistic and we care about other people's welfare and i might want to nudge you in the direction that makes it more likely that you i don't know are, are more future oriented for example right that, that's that's one that we that we care a lot about in the behavioral sciences and a lot across different you know, trying to make people care more about their future selves you mentioned it earlier yep. yourself and part of that is because we care but i wonder also part of it is because 
well, listen, I'm damn patient, so you better be as well, right? I can't have you, I can't have you going off and enjoying yourself and having loads of fun because yeah. I've, managed to, I've managed to restrain myself. I've managed to constrain myself. I've managed to play by the rules. And I can't have you going off and making me feel jealous for not being able to do that myself because I'm constrained by, you know, social, social expectations. So I'm really interested in sort of unpicking some of how much what we might prescribe about other people's behavior is driven by our own you know, desires to actually be like that if only we could. To act, to act out on them. And I guess kind of what you touched on as well on, um, when, we, when we speak about narratives, if we think about people working together who come from different backgrounds, who have different life perspectives, yeah. they, there will be a dominant group probably in that situation who set social norms. And again, I think in Happy Ever After, you speak a bit about this, where you talk about people who come from um, working class backgrounds who end up working in professional careers, where up to very, very recently, there hasn't been too much representation of people from working class backgrounds. Um, do you want to say a bit about where you think that research could go? Because it feels to me, because you know I'm interested in inclusion, so it feels to me that if yeah. we have inclusive organisations, we really need to unpick, firstly, who's setting the social norms and whether or not they have a, actually a right to set those social norms and ask people to live up to whatever their expectations are. Yeah, I think that's a really good. I know, I know that you're particularly uh, interested in that in the inclusion initiative. And I, I don't know that there's any, again, any, any simple answers to this. I do know that, you know, I do, I do sense that in our, um, well, I mean, actually think you can even think about this in relation to COVID responses. We haven't, we haven't touched on this yet, but there is a, you know, there is, I, I'm, I'm concerned, I've you know, made, made this point on various occasions in events that we've had about groupthink that has been developed around the policy responses. And I'm surprised that there's as much consensus as there is about what we ought to be doing, given the in, inherent uncertainty uh, that we face in the environment. And that, that must come to some large degree from a lack of diversity of perspective um, in the decision-making process, in that all of the the uh, decision makers and advisors come from a particular age group. They come with a particular risk posture. They come with a particular uh, cost and benefits that will be experienced from particular measures. And I think, you know, it's kind of, it's, 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 it's magnified. I think much of what's already there. I don't think, I don't think, I think actually COVID is a lot like social, social media is that it doesn't, it hasn't actually created anything that wasn't already there it's just magnified what was already present i find it interesting we talk about you know um in relation to disadvantaged uh children in schools that now it's suddenly all of a massive issue which which obviously is about kids from poor backgrounds not getting access to education in the same way as kids from more affluent backgrounds that's kind of always been the case that's, like we've, that's, that's always how it's been it's not like it's just created it. it's just magnified it further so maybe it's sort of shone a light on some of these issues that we should have been considering much more fully before. Um, I do think in relation to that, as I, you, you mentioned about uh, inclusion in relation to class, which is something that's very, you know, can, uh, of, of interest to me, it again relates to the interventions. Because you think about a lot of the behavioural interventions, they're, they're really in a way to sort of make people more middle class, aren't they? To make them, you know, eat a bit more healthily, exercise more, be a bit more future oriented, kind of be a bit more like me in the sense of the person who's implementing the interventions. And I'm sure there is a considerable degree of, you know, sense in which some of those interventions will be good 
for some of the people, but not but not all of the people all of the time. And again, understanding the differences there, I think, will be significant and important. And and, and just one final observation, just one final comment, if I may, on the uh, on the class issue in relation to successful working class people. There is definitely there is definitely a sense that you either fit in or fuck off. I mean, that's essentially that's essentially the choice that that you face. You either play by the rules of the game and join the club that you want to be a member of, or you're not allowed, to, or, or you don't join the club. Um, and it would be good if we could, you could, in the work that you're doing and others, break down some of those those you know kind of barriers so that people can be truer to their authentic selves. But at the same time, and at the same time, this isn't a but, it's and at the same time, being more respectful and affording status to those people who aren't successful working class or other people who are doing jobs that have high social value, which we've seen through the pandemic, uh, uh, lots of key workers whose jobs are not very well paid, but they are important jobs that society requires. And for us to be able to afford higher status to those jobs, if we can't always afford to pay them more um, money, um, and and that that I think brings us to a discussion. I'll just say this as one final re- reflection. I thought it was always going to be my final point, so I make my final point. Um, the final point about the role of agency in this, because I think that we 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 know that as a narrative, luck is a, is is a horrible narrative. It has no agency. It has no control. It has no order. It has no structure. And randomness is a horrible horrible story. We can't tell a story about randomness. And, and, and so much of what happens to us in our lives is, is a function of randomness and luck. And I think to some large degree, although, of course, policymakers have had some significant impact on what's happened during the pandemic, there is a sense in which some of what's happened across countries and stuff has been, has been due to good and bad luck. Yeah. Um, but we, but we, can't really, we can't really say that because that's not, that's not giving agency to it properly. And I think we just need a little bit of more, maybe a bit more circumspection, not just at the individual level, but I think also at the societal and policy level about the role that randomness plays. Um, I'm kind of coming to that, to that conclusion a little bit in the policy responses to COVID. What you said to me in, in, in your first point really bothers me. So the idea that you have people who are coming from working class backgrounds and they either fit in or they fudge off to, 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 bleep, out your, to bleep out your swear word. But the um, if they're fitting in, it's all right. Just I think it's all right. Just <laughs> if but if they're fitting in, Paul, then yeah. the, whole, the whole point of them being there for me is quite redundant. So the whole idea of actually getting people <laughs> from working class backgrounds into yeah, the yeah. post is to get different life perspectives, different views, and folk who can identify better with the people who they're making they're making policies for. So that adaptation is really worrying. Yeah, I think yeah, it's LSE has. Has is quite rightly proud of its widening participation program, where it's you know managed to get high numbers of of, of kids from um, working class backgrounds into universities compared to Russell Group, other Russell Group universities, and that's great. But it would be it would be a kind of shame, wouldn't it, if that all we do is take un- working class undergraduates and turn them into middle class graduates? Yes. But they end up they end up leaving university. They either you know stay or leave, and they and they end up for those that stay end up becoming like the people like everyone else <laughs> so so i think a big part of of inclusion will be obviously of course i don't need to tell you this or anyone else is really but to remind ourselves that it does actually 
in, include diversity and that's the and that's the interest i think that's the interesting challenge isn't it that, you, that often these two things kind of cut across one another in some way it does it does and, and 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 i think i mean what you say i really identify with because i see you see that um and i think the idea that there's a, a particular type of person who's making all the policy decisions um has really i think one other thing that covid has done is really shone that light um i mean kids schooling is the ex- is is the example that you gave um, you know the people who made those policies clearly could not identify with needing a school meal i think that's a I think that I think that's an easy statement for me to make. And if we had more people who could, I think some of the mistakes around that wouldn't have actually happened. Well, I completely agree. You know what I think about that. I don't think I, I will. I will still I will always, always maintain. I mean, you know, there could be evidence that could, could lead me to change my mind. I think that the closing of schools in response to the pandemic has been this this has, has clearly disproportionately affected disadvantaged young people in ways that are not proportionate to the risks faced by the virus um that that i think and i do think that that and i i find it what i find interesting about that is that there are there aren't very many people saying it quite like that publicly um and 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 that's quite surprising i think that you know that we that that and maybe that does come from a a particular demographic or a particular kind of person involved in the policy making that's led to the herd behaviors of thinking that that you know shutting shutting schools was a proportionate response um you would expect there to be more disagreement about that wouldn't you well, I, I would i would think that they, you would expect more people to think that actually you know that the disadvantaged children who you know the stay-at-home messaging stay-at-home is not a safe place for many many kids um schools are the one place where they get care and attention and food and it's noticed if there are harms being caused to them at home um you've wiped away that whole layer of support in response to a pandemic that is dangerous that is killing people but 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 thankfully the one thankful upside of the pandemic or of this particular virus is that is that it isn't a virus that affects many children very much uh and so our responses have kind of been a a, a, a very clear intergenerational transfer that that it's interesting that there isn't more discussion and conversation of that and i and and and, and it's almost it, well, it's almost certainly the case that the the lack of diversity in the decision making process and the lack of perspectives that are involved in the decisions have almost certainly led to those outcomes thank you paul i, I can see that you have a lot of questions so i'm going to start with the most popular <laughs> vanessa <laughs> who's interested to hear what you think is a problem that has been fairly unexplored by behavioral scientists but has the potential to give high impact change yeah so i think it's a good question i think if we think about what i mean what are the major what are the major challenges i guess i guess the kind of wicked wicked kind of problems are are ones that we're going to be facing if it's not a pandemic it'll be some other you know some sort of health or financial crisis or a social crisis that's going to emerge in ways that we can't predict with any degree of probability at least we can't attach probability to these uncertain events and how prepared are we in being able to deal with a future pandemic maybe 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 one that is is much more risky to young people for example yeah. what would we do how would how would we respond to that and what lessons could we learn from how we have managed this pandemic well and badly that would enable us to ensure that we have a proportionate response to the next pandemic 
I think that's and so what some of the issues that we've been talking about now I think are are fundamentally important to that the adoption of different perspectives um you know we've heard a lot about following the science we should be following the science and the social science social scientists need to be playing playing a much 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 more prominent role in thinking about how to respond to what is not just the health crisis has been a health economic and social crisis um, and so ensuring that you have those those different perspectives properly represented that you have people with different sets of experiences and understandings um, and, you know, i do think i do think i agree i, I, I really fully think that you know had people had anyone making the decisions known what lo- the lives of vulnerable children being taken out of school would be like then there may have been different different ways in which we um have dealt with the pandemic so so that is definitely lessons um climate change i guess that's got to be you know high on the list it's a really difficult it's one of the most difficult behavioral challenges isn't it because because a lot of the costs that we observe from our behaviors in relation to climate change are ones downstream they're not ones that we're directly observing in front of us now and whilst you know whilst we might all say that we care about the future and, and that we don't we don't actually that much in in our current behaviors they're very much more temp, you know, currently contemporaneously located so getting people to think about the cons- longer term consequences is really difficult um if not impossible so maybe getting them to maybe we should be framing some of those climate change mitigation and adaptation policies in terms of contemporaneous costs and benefits i think that's going to be a more effective set of behavioral interventions than trying to get people to think long term as they do they they only do when you're thinking about it not not we're not not when you're living your life day to day so i think climate change is clearly clearly one where we can be doing we can be doing more but i think in those issues wicked wicked you know problems climate change other big 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 problems and challenges there is really a a need for the regulatory and legislative process as well as the behavioral kind of nudges that we might use or understanding the more deeper understanding of the narratives that people might bring to particular decisions i think there is a there is a role for 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 understanding how to use legislation and regulation better so that you, so and when you say that the that, that that there's a role for understanding how to use legislation better yeah. is that something that you see behavioral scientists working on more in the future kind of moving away from the lab towards thinking about policy levers in these kind of natural experiment environments yeah natural experiments have not been i mean they've been more used by economists haven't they than they than they have by psychologists they haven't, haven't really been using natural experiments that much i think generally natural natural experiments haven't been uh, sort of taken advantage of as much as you might might expect them to um i think that's definitely and you know kind of the involvement of legal scholars and you know practitioners in in um some of these and in, uh, uh addressing some of these these bigger behavioral challenges that are not that won't be only about or even if about a little nudge here and there there'll be a, a bigger conversation and i suppose it sort of does relate back to you know like when i was when I wrote Happiness by Design, it, it is more in keeping. It's not a self help book. It's, it's clearly not a self help book, um, but it's in that it's in that genre of kind of what you can do for yourself in order to be happier. Um, but happier after is really about swimming against the tide of social narratives and expectations. You can't do all of this. You can't do any of this. You can't do much of it alone. It requires a joined up approach to addressing some of the barriers and obstacles that might sit in the way of you 
being individually happier. And I think, I think analogously with addressing any of the big challenges, it's not just about what individual behavior we can change in order to affect a particular outcome, but what, what conversations we ought to be having with each other collectively, societally about some of these problems. And, you know, obviously we're, we're talking today as Joe Biden is inaugurated, I think, are we pretty much, pretty much now. And that requires, I mean, that reminds me of the polarization of a lot of discourse. It, what we need to address any of the big challenges that we're going to face in the future is a humility and an appreciation and understanding that other people can see the world differently to us. Um, I, and I, yeah, go on. I think this, Paul, is something that I've bumped up actually while talking to you in, in events like this and privately is the role of beliefs. So if I was to pick a topic, you know, when we talk about kind of welfare cost consequence models, those costs and benefits come around because usually we need people to act in a certain way and we act in a certain way kind of given our beliefs. So I think if I was to kind of think about the next 10 years going forward, given what you just said, I think behavioral scientists need to really take seriously studying beliefs and also answer the question, is it okay for us to try to change people's beliefs? Because in yeah. some ways, you know, should we leave people... <clears throat> That, that, that they have or should we be trying to paint them in the direction that society wants and who determines that direction yeah it's interesting that in the regression equations that i'm familiar with in happiness research you know one of the biggest i think the, 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 the like the big thing missing would be people's tastes and preferences but you know that the you know like you'd want to know like when people talk about you know whether marriage makes people happy or whether kids make people happy you don't know whether for that individual, that is something that that's in their preference function, that's in their taste, that's something that they that they would would want or not want. That if you knew that, then you would have a better case for making causal inference, you know, from 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 some of these data, which we can't really make very much causal inference for most of it. Um, so definitely understanding of the differences across people measured in all sorts of ways is it, it will be will be important. But I want to want to emphasise this point about whatever your beliefs are. And however strongly you hold them, someone else is entitled to have a different belief and hold that just as strongly as you are. And and I do think that we we need we need that humility. We don't we don't need it. We don't necessarily need it individually, um, but we do need it collectively. We need processes, democratic processes, institutions, maybe in org in organisations that are some of the the work that you might be doing in the workplace to bring together different perspectives in a way that's not even always about finding a consensus and a middle ground through them, but just in, as a first order condition, getting people to accept that other people can see things differently. Um, I think that's, that's, the first, that's, the, that's the step that we've, we kind of seem to have lost um, sight of a bit, I think. And I think, Paul, even if you move to a simple place where we hear everyone's perspective and whoever is in charge makes the decision, if they write down those perspectives and if they self-reflect a year later after things have changed and they look to see whose perspective probably could have got you in the right direction if things have gone wrong, I think there's learning in that. Um, I think very often we try to push to the mean and we don't keep the outlier ideas and we really want everyone to agree with <laughs> each other. And if you think about you know, innovation, creativity, making good public policy, we're probably leaving a lot of really good ideas on the floor. We are. And also, I think like you, mentioned, you mentioned messengers earlier, and it reminds me of, of a really important lesson about, you know, like messengers are clearly, clearly important. There's, you know, and uh, there's, there's a whole raft of literature uh, on that. 
but we don't always want to we we sometimes need to listen to the message and not just the messenger because we've reached the point where it's almost the case where i don't know i don't know whether i believe what you're saying or not until i know whether till i know who's saying it so i'm thinking of maybe in relation to the free school meals because that comes that we were you know talking about kids just now is that the the case the strong case for the government providing free school meals in the holidays originally came from Henry Dimbleby, I think, who was CEO of Leon, an old Etonian posh public school boy who made the case. And a lot of people ridiculed that. You know, what does he know about um, poor kids? Marcus Rashford retweets Henry Dimbleby's report and, and work. And everyone's then suddenly in favour of free school meals, as they quite rightly ought, ought to be, as Marcus, Marcus has done amazing job but we but it, it took marcus rashford to do it before we listened and, it, and we need to we need to sometimes step back from messengers and just think is what is being said making sense does that is that something that we ought to be, be doing not just jumping people jump immediately on the bandwagon of this person is a good person it's almost like in the in the psychotherapy literature which my wife uh, works in this area she works in um it's called splitting it's like what children do it's this very idea like our, our, our son does it a lot still he's 11 is like is 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 he is this person good is this person bad it's this kind of sort of unambiguous sense in which a particular position or a particular person has complete merit and the opposite person or view has no merit and as we ought to know when we grow up as he will hopefully learn as he gets older is that there's ambivalence considerable ambivalence across most things including people including positions and recognizing and appreciating that ambivalence is going to be it's just it's, it's just fundamentally important for us to have a well functioning society i think and i'd like to listen to in a second but what you said really strikes me the importance of the standing ovation model now so this idea that we have these people and whenever they stand up everyone stands up after them regardless of what they're saying um and i was watching um quite recently this documentary by martin scorsese on netflix by fran uh, fran Leibowitz, and she's kind of reflecting on New York and she's really talking about information overload that we can now say what's on our mind 24 hours a day really really you know very very quick access but a lot of the times people are saying what they're experts in or what they have kind of fully formed opinions in and then there's a lot of noise that goes through that as well and what you've just said kind of complicates it further that if something is picked up by somebody who can get everyone to stand behind them we can end up chasing something that mightn't actually be good for society. Um, yeah. So, I, so I have a question for you on ethics, Paul, from Kes. So, what are your thoughts on the private sector using behavioural economic research for profit maximising, given that much of the research focuses on social benefits and aggregate utility? Yeah, it's a good question. Um, Liam Delaney, who's in, is 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 uh, recently joined us in in our department PBS, has this uh, has, has written a piece. I think it's for good, uh, which is about, or is it for? I think it's for good. Something I he'll. he'll uh, Correct me if I'm wrong on that. It's an acronym for looking at the ethical um, implications of the behavioural uh, nudges or shoves. Um, it, it's it's an interesting it's an interesting question about uh, you know what what is the substan what 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 is the substantive objective of any of any behaviour change intervention? And again, I come back to the to the well being. It must be it must be about something has to show up somewhere in in making someone better off now the pro we're we're really we're really quite willing and compliant to large extent about the private sector doing that 
to us to nudge us and shove us in particular directions. We go into a supermarket and the, you've got the smell of fresh bread in the bakery there. There, there isn't even a fucking bakery. They just make it smell nice. So you buy more stuff. Um, and we kind of like allow, you know, companies to do that to us. We sign all the terms of every time you sign the terms and conditions of a, of an app or whatever, you're signing your life away, your soul away. That's all fine. Um, sometimes when the public sector tries to do it in ways that might actually make us better off and feel good, there's, there's, people are up in arms about nanny state and interference and everything. So that's that, that I find interesting that there's kind of a much more willingness to accept. And maybe it's because there's a monopoly in the public sector in the way that there isn't in the private sector. You can still go to a different supermarket. Yeah. You can still go and use a different app, but you can't have a different government. Well, unless you vote them out every five years or sort of, you know, something. So, so I think maybe that's part of the explanation but I do think that there is, if you take, for example, financial decision-making or financial behavior, um, that there is, there's been a lot of literature written about how we could, we should be trying to de-bias individuals of some quite significant effects, maybe like loss aversion or hyperbolic discounting or whatever, or that companies and particularly companies shouldn't be taking advantage of those effects in individuals. What we might as well do, other than maybe it's alternatively do, is have a, a conversation about where the win-win interventions and products and services might be. That is thinking about products and services that will both be welfare enhancing for the individual and enable the companies to make a profit. Because that might be actually that might be a better that might be a better conversation than trying to pretend that we can sort of de-bias ourselves of some of these effects. Because there presumably are products and services that that I would benefit from in a financial and psychological well-being sense that companies could provide me that they would make profit from. And in those cases, I don't really mind if I'm being manipulated or nudged around because it's actually doing, it's doing something that I appreciate as having then been in my best interest afterwards. I don't think we have enough conversation about, about like that Venn diagram where those, where that subset of win-win um, interventions might be located. So we've touched on beliefs, Paul, and I think, you know, from what you said, I, I, I want to get your reaction to one of my beliefs. So I think if you're doing good behavioral science, you should be making choices easier for people, giving them more information, but they should still have agency. So I think a really great example of that are some of these finance apps that you can download that will highlight how much you're spending on coffee. Uh, so if you do want to save money, then you realize you're spending 100 quid on coffee and say it, it, it's made salient and then you choose later. Um, but then some of the, I think what some of the the, the things that are on the, the participants' mind are products that were pushed into without necessarily knowing. So if you could choose a world, would you choose a world where behavioral scientists are really only giving people agency? Um, what, so what are the things, have you got anything coming in that is about particular things that are being pushed on us to people give it a bit more context? People are asking you about challenges. They're asking you um, about, um, if someone who works in public health field is asking you specifically about vaccines. Yeah. Hear your thoughts on using social listening platforms to tailor messaging for behavioral change um we have people talking about whether or not um heuristics and biases really should be portrayed in a negative light whether we should be looking to see the positives that they actually bring to our lives no specific yeah. bias is being asked okay. about probably. okay well let's just say a couple of things so on on vaccines it's a good it's a good illustration of the polarization i think that is expected or gets created by the narratives particularly in the media and as well is that if you have any doubts at all or concerns about the vaccine which you might think that it's come out very quickly. You're not sure about how long immunity is going to last. 
you're not sure whether you can transmit the virus to other people. You might be con 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 concerned about whether there might be some side effects further downstream that haven't been recognised. Those are legitimate concerns uh, to, to some large extent. But you immediately get lumped into the anti-vaxxer group, where, you know, it's just like kind of your you know crazy person who doesn't believe in vaccines. And of course, the behavioural messaging and interventions, you know, that would be helpful in nudging people towards the vaccine would be very different for those groups of people, for the ones that are hesitant, but not yeah. kind of resistant. But you get this polarised, like either you're completely in favour of vaccines, 100% sign up, brilliant, wonderful, or you're completely opposed to them and you're a crazy anti-vaxxer or something, you know, or whatever the language that would li you know, li literally be used to, to create those polar extremes. Um, on the biases and heuristics point, I think that it's, you know, that... I don't like, I, I sort of get a bit nervous about evolutionary arguments because there is always an Alice in Wonderland sense to those. You know, you can never falsify an argument and evolution is never straightforward and linear. So you know, there's, there's going to be perturbations and randomness and mess. Yeah. Um, and so you can never really, like, it's just, you know, it's not always, there's always a nice story in an evolutionary argument. But a lot of those um, biases and heuristics would have emerged as, as, substantively rational responses to the environments within which they've developed they might just you know what we're what's often has been interested in is where it shows up as being a mistake uh, but of course a lot of the time most of the time it isn't a mistake you know like system one processes is are incredibly efficient and remarkably um helpful you know just so happens that sometimes when i in the days when i used to travel in from brighton to london to go to the lse um there would be occasions where i needed to be somewhere else first but i'm halfway to lse before i realized that i'm on the wrong train now that i can say to myself oh what a fool i've known all along i should be going somewhere else but that's actually a really efficient process because 99 times out of 100 it is taking me in the right direction without me having to think about it so so we so we do need a a sort of equilibrium model that, that that looks at this in completeness and rather than and I think this is where where psychologists have sometimes got a bit lost is looking at sort of just individual behaviors in one moment and showing a bias or a, or a mistake and not looking at the equilibrium effects that might emerge from that being substantively rational in some bigger sense the other thing that's important here to remember and I'm not I'm not sure I'm, I'm like providing any helpful answers to any of these questions but making us more alert to some of the important challenges that often get overlooked is the evolutionary advantage in heterogeneity is that you wouldn't like you wouldn't expect societies to evolve well with everybody having the same appetite for risk for example right i mean if everyone was everyone was cautious and safe you wouldn't you know you know kind of take chance get get anywhere and grow if everyone took risk you'd kind of die off quickly so you know you kind of want a distribution and you want a distribution across most dimensions. And again, that comes to my recognition and appreciation of difference. I think that's what that's where that's where this is going for me. This is where the natural course of this conversation has taken us, I think, is the appreciation of difference, which is really, really, really hard for us. I know the academics are, are good for saying, you know, I, I'm interested in evidence and science, but we all bring our own prejudices and biases and preconceptions to our research questions. So one of the things in, in academia is adversarial collaboration, where we try to deliberately set up research projects with people that disagree with us. And maybe that's something that we should be doing more in other environments, in institutions, in organisations, in workplaces, in, in public policy, is act actively engaging with people that 
have a different view of the world to us. I mean, I, I, I echo your, your sentiments in general equilibrium effects. I think if we think about something to study for the next two years, there would adaptation, individual differences has to be thinking about general equilibrium effects and even assigning costs, Paul. So it baffles me when people look at interventions and they give you an effect and they say it's significant, but how large is the effect and what's the cost and what's the benefits of actually rolling out that intervention? Because that allows people um, cross compare pretty easily. I have a fun question that we're going to finish on um, before I wrap up is how would you nudge governments to use more behavioral scientists? Oh, do you want to answer that? Hard. No, it's really hard. That's, that, um, that, that, um, that's for you. You should have a go first. <laughs> you should have a go first while I, while I, while I think. I guess, I mean, I mean, we have behavioral scientists since age, I think. I mean, one of the, one of the things that has startled me about the, 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 the response to COVID is the lack of economists kind of conversing with the medics and yeah. conversing with behavior, um, the, the behavioral scientists. But actually nudging somebody, I guess the, I guess the argument is if we, ha if we see groups of people who don't have behavioral scientists where we think that they could use them, how do we actually get them in? And, and I think as a, as a behavioral scientist myself, I'm very good at disguising as an economist. So maybe it's not a nudge. Maybe it's more wearing a mask or something and going under a, dis a disciplinary heading that feels familiar to the group but keeping your your diverse perspectives um so maybe it's more st strategy than nudging yeah it's certainly true that there are health psychologists in in sage i think it would be it would be and there are, and there has been a lack of general a lack of economists in doesn't necessarily have to be in sage which is advising on a particular set of responses but the more complete policy understanding and the implications of particular policies and measures is very much within the remit of a welfare economist. I mean, that's what welfare economists are trained. That's what I was trained to think about is opportunity cost trade-offs, yeah. the intensive and extensive margin, you know, all, all these things that are, that, that, that haven't played through, it seems to me from the outside very much into to policy discussions. Um, and, you know, whether more behavior, I think, I think it maybe comes back, I think we would sort of loop some of this background to our original opening discussion which is to bring to to have behavioral science as a much broader church of disciplines um and perspectives and maybe that that's what we would have had in the, what we should have as we move forward into wicked problems and other challenges that we're going to face climate change elsewhere is to have those perspectives that are from anthropology from sociology they're behavioral scientists because they're interested in understanding and changing behavior but they're bringing a different set of perspectives and experiences to bear on the questions, um, which broadens us out from health psychologists, which have been the, the main focus of interest in this current pandemic. So we had a question that really asked about um, whether or not places like TikTok, Facebook are ahead of behavioural scientists in research with respect to a lot of aspects. And I, I really feel the biggest collaborations that we can do at this point are with, are with organisations, organisations who have data, who have ideas and, and, and who, are, who, who, who are speedy who can kind of give us the kind of speed that academics don't necessarily have. And I think that there's a comparative advantage to that. What do you think about that, Paul? I think that's a good idea. I mean, you know, they, those tech giants are really good at behavioural science. I mean, well, at, at, at get, engaging people in behaviours that are addictive, that, uh, that are not, you know, that are not, that in spite of the fact that there's going to be some wellbeing feedback that makes you feel good for doing something substantively, you know, people often feel a lot worse off when they're engaged in some of these te te 
technologies, especially for long periods of time. Um, and I think one of the barriers to that, I think, is a like these narratives play out is that, and this is of course not not all academics, but some but some academics have this real really deep suspicion of the private sector and the idea that anyone who's working in the private sector is just only about making money, um, and uh, you know we should stay away from them. And um, of course, as 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 anyone knows, there are very good people and very bad people working in both public and private sectors. But but most people most people are to some degree motivated by purpose I, obviously that's a big you know in, um, happiness interest of, of mine most people don't want to be doing things that they that they don't feel are worthwhile and that worthwhileness does play out even if it's a narrative they tell themselves into doing something that's good so so i think i think a collaboration between men, the many people who feel like they have jobs for something where they are making a contribution yeah. um would be effective but i think it's one of the barriers to us working with organizations like facebook and other places is that is that they're not we we shouldn't be working with them because they're nasty companies uh of course there are you know so sometimes they are and some people in them are but there is an opportunity for us to to co to to learn from one another and to co-create some of our understanding yeah no i agree with that so paul what i'm going to do is i'm going to sum up the themes for the future and i'm going to give you the yeah. last words maybe you can think about okay. If I've missed something or if there's something that you want that you wanted to say that you didn't get to say. So thank you everybody for coming this evening. I think Paul and I know how precious time is. It's a resource that can't be replenished. So we're really happy that you took this time to be with us this evening. There's a lot of questions on the MSC and the EMSC and content. Do reach out to one of us or the other of us on Twitter and we'll get you connected with the right person in the department. Um, tonight, when we were looking forwards, we talked about the, the importance of thinking about adaptation. So not just looking at short run effects, but looking at these long run effects. We talked about the, the importance of looking at the general, general equilibrium effects and also looking at individual differences and not just how interventions differ across individuals in society but the value that different perspectives can actually bring to conversations. So thank you very much for your time. And I will pass you over to Paul for last words. Thanks, everyone. No, thank you, Grace. I don't really think there's anything further to add. I, I really genuinely appreciate everyone. It, it, you know, still, even though we've done a few of these events in various ways over the last 10 months, and maybe we'll have a few more of them to come, it's still very odd, isn't it, to be in an environment where you can see these large numbers of participants and you can't see any of them and you have I'd no idea. I'd love the energy. I'd, I would love to be in the, we'll get there. We'll get there soon. We will. We will. And it's just, but it is, I am just, I, I, I am genuinely appreciative and grateful for people joining us, listening to us um, and hopefully taking away some of the, you know, one of the things that I, I try to do when I'm teaching is, is to just, interest people in stuff right and, like, and, and again you haven't got to agree with everything i say you know it's it's it, it, it's about galvanizing an interest and maybe sparking off something that might make you do something a bit differently but at worst, at worst at best make you think a little bit differently about something i think that's what that's what our roles are is to sort of challenge and prod and you know just get people just to reflect on things a little more or differently and if we've and if we've managed to achieve that in this last hour then we've done a good job and just thank you everyone for joining i agree thank you everybody stay safe and we hope to see you in person soon at the lsc stay happy stay happy happy stay happy. happy happy healthy and safe bye happy and safe <laughs> see you paul thank you so much thank you thank you Bye.